0: I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. Book of Jeremiah, as we did the last two weeks, my plan today is to introduce us to another major theme in Jeremiah, the theme of the king, or as it says on the PowerPoint, the rise and return of the king. And in case you're wondering, I do really like the Lord of the Rings, but there there will be no scenes from Aragorn during this sermon. But the theme of the king will be our focus both this Sunday and next Sunday. But we're going to be doing two different things in these uh, sermons. Today, we'll mostly be in Jeremiah, tracing this theme throughout the book. So this will be pretty normal to what we've been doing. But next week, my plan is for us to spend almost all our time outside of Jeremiah And what we're going to be doing next week is trying to figure out how what Jeremiah said about the king fits into the bigger story of the king in the Bible. So the next two sermons are going to be very related to what I talked about in our Bible class earlier this morning, a Bible class on the topic of biblical theology. If you're not quite sure what that means, no worries. I will talk about that some more uh, next week in the sermon. But I also want to invite you to come to our Bible class uh, every month in October 9.30 a.m. on the topic of biblical theology. Okay, but for today, let's get into the book of Jeremiah. What does this big book have to say about the king? That is our question. And I want to highlight what I think are the three biggest ideas that Jeremiah says about the king in in his book. So first, I want to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 10. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 10, which has become one of my Uh, favorite chapters in Jeremiah. This is a chapter where Jeremiah challenges his people not to worry about the gods of the other nations, not to worry about their customs, their beliefs. After all, Jeremiah says, none of their gods, which are only wood and stone, can compare to the living God of Israel. And so this is one of those chapters in the prophet's where the prophet kind of mocks the gods of the nations. And I always like those. So this is Jeremiah chapter 10. We're just going to dip into this. Chapter 10, verse 6. Okay? Jeremiah says, 10:6, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you? O king of the nations, for this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. And then look at verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. Now, now Jeremiah talks about a lot of kings in this book. He personally knew a lot of kings. uh, And he knew a lot about a lot of other kings too, not just the kings of Judah. He knew a lot about foreign kings too, like like King Nebuchadnezzar, for example, that we've talked about recently. But what is Jeremiah's view of the king in this text? This is the most foundational thing he has to say about kings. In, in the book, and that is that God is king. Okay. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? The gods of the nations are stupid and foolish, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting king. Okay. So for Jeremiah, and really all of the authors of scripture, that is foundational to everything else they say about kings. The God of Israel is the king of the world. Okay, but, but don't get me wrong, because that doesn't mean that Jeremiah doesn't think human kings are important. In Jeremiah, human kings matter, especially the kings from whose family? The kings from the family of David. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time, because that's mostly what Jeremiah talks about when he talks about kings, when he talks about human kings. He likes to talk about the kings from David's family. And what does he have to say about those kings? For this, I want to look at Jeremiah chapter 22. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 22. We're going to spend most of our time in this chapter, 22 and 23. Now, it's important to remember something I've said a few times in this, in this series, and that is that Jeremiah served for a long time. Okay. He served during the reign of five different kings in Judah. Okay. So he saw a lot of David's sons come and go, maybe more than any other prophet, I'm not sure. Okay. The first one that he saw was Josiah, and Josiah was a great king. After that, they were total duds. I've said that before. They, and that is to put it kindly. Okay? Jeremiah has much harsher things to say about them. Okay? But you hear a lot about these five kings throughout this 52-chapter book. But it's in Jeremiah 22 that you get the clearest insight into what God thinks about the kings after Josiah. Okay? It gives us more or less God's opinion of these different kings, one by one. And that's what I want us to see. Jeremiah's take on the sons of David. So let's start with Jeremiah chapter 22, and we're gonna look at verse 11. Okay, this is God's opinion of the king right after Josiah, okay? Now in this text, he's called Shalom. Typically, he's called Jehoahaz in other texts, okay? This guy, didn't last long. He was taken captive to Egypt after only three months of being king, okay? But this is what God says about him. So 22:11. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, and who went away from this place because he was taken to Egypt. He shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die and he shall never see this land again. Okay, so what is God's message about that son of David? He's never coming back. Okay, now let's skip down a few verses to verse 18. Okay, this is God's message, opinion, about the next king, Jehoiakim another son of Josiah, another son of David. Verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, ah, my brother, ah, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, ah, Lord, or ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged, and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Yikes. (laughs) What is God's message about that guy? No one will even care when he dies. I mean, could anything be more disgraceful for a king than that? Now, let's skip down a few more verses to verse 24. This is God's message about the next king. In this text, he's called... Kenaiha, but he's best known in the Bible by another name, Jehoiakim, or Jehoiachin. He's the grandson of Josiah, but he's another son of David. So, verse 24 As I live, declares the Lord, though Kenaiha, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. And give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. God says, I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. And then skip down to verse 30, the last verse of the chapter. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Okay, what is God's message about that guy? Even if he were God's signet ring on his right hand, God would tear him off and throw him away. A signet ring, by the way, uh, was something very special to the king. A king would wear it and use it to seal things to show that they were from the king. Like this was a very precious possession to kings at this time. And God says, even if that guy were my signet ring, I would tear him off and throw him away. I am going to hurl him and his mom into another country where they are going to die. They will never come back. Okay, And and here's the. Historically, it might be helpful to think, think through this. Okay? There was one king after this guy. His name was Zedekiah. He would actually be the last son of David on David's throne. But it would be this king, Kaniah or Jehoiakim, who would live the longest. He would outlive Zedekiah for a long time. He would live for many decades in Babylon. Okay. And so you could imagine that there was likely hope in Judah that one day the king would return and reclaim the Davidic throne. But what does God say in the final verse of the chapter? God wants to make very clear to the people that's never going to happen with this guy and his kids. Write this man down as childless. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't have any kids. He did have kids, but what's the point? Not one of his sons will sit on the throne of David. The Davidic dynasty is being chopped down to the ground. God has turned his face against the sons of David. Now, in the story of the Bible, that is absolutely devastating news. Okay, but not just that. That actually seems to contradict what God promised to David in the text we read earlier today from 2 Samuel chapter seven. Do you think about that? Because in that text I read, God promises David an eternal kingdom where his sons will always sit on the throne. But here in our text, it seems as though God has pronounced a death sentence on the Davidic dynasty. Have you ever thought about that? What are we supposed to do with that? Okay, perhaps the best answer is to just keep reading Jeremiah, the very next verses. Okay? This will be our third big idea about the king. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture," declares the Lord. Okay, now, now, who are those shepherds? By the way, like I don't, I don't think this is just a random like. And by the way, there's those shepherds out in the field, and they're bad too. Okay, who are these shepherds? These are the leaders of Israel. And they are especially the kings from David's family who were just talked about all over the last chapter, like the verses right before this. Because God called David and the kings after David, his sons, to be the shepherds of his people Israel. But instead of tending and defending the sheep, what have they done? And he says two things. They've destroyed and scattered the sheep. And I wonder what God thinks when his shepherds do this to his sheep. And by the way, just as I can aside, may all of us who are pastors or who would ever think about being pastors or shepherds take heed to these words of what God does when shepherds don't tend and care for the sheep. Jeremiah 22, verse 2, therefore, thus says the Lord, this is, uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, 23, 23, verse 2, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, you have not attended to them, behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And that's what chapter 22 was all about. God will judge and hold accountable every unfaithful shepherd. <clears throat> but that's not where chapter 23 is going to stop. It's going to go beyond that. Look at verse 3. Then, like after that, I will gather, I will gather, the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they will be fruitful and multiply and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. See, one day things will be different. God himself will bring back his sheep, and he'll put over those sheep better shepherds. Now, all of that sounds really good, but it's going to get even better. Just look at verse 5, 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, what do you think about that after the last words of the last chapter? In the last chapter, it was like God was chopping down David's family tree. It was like God pronounced a death sentence on the Davidic dynasty. But now, within a few verses, God says this. Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So in chapter 22, it's God's pronouncement of death. And in chapter 23, it's God's promise of resurrection. God is going to basically kill the Davidic hope, and then God's going to resurrect it. God will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now that is very similar to what you may have heard from the book of Isaiah, if you've ever read through another big prophet, the, book, in the, uh, the prophet Isaiah. To make sense of the pictures that they t- tell or paint, you have to think of a tree. Okay, So Isaiah talks about how David's family or his dynasty will be cut down so that there will only be a stump left. That's how Isaiah tells the picture. But then Isaiah, the prophet, announces this. This is in Isaiah chapter 11. He says, then there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that's David's dad, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then if you read that text in Isaiah 11, that will lead to the restoration of the world where the lion lies down with the lamb. That's the text. Okay. I think we're dealing with the same picture in Jeremiah. In both cases, you have to think of like David's family tree. God is chopping it down to the roots. But in both cases, God promises to raise up a new branch for David. These are God's reminders to God's people that God is not finished with David's family, even if nobody sits on the throne of David for a really long time. This is God's promise of a new and better son of David who will rule justly and who will actually bring righteousness To his people. Because look at the next verse, Jeremiah twenty three, verse six. Look at what happens when that king comes. Twenty three six. In his days, Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now that that right there is by no means the only time in Jeremiah where you see this hope of resurrection of David's family. Okay, I'll just point us to two more texts, and then I want to step back and I want to think about this. So go to the middle of the book, Jeremiah chapter 30, and we're just going to read two other texts that talk about the very same hope. So one is in Jeremiah chapter 30, and there's more than these, but Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 8. In that day declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. That sounds really similar. The difference, though, you might have picked it up, is that this text says when this happens... The people will serve the Lord and David, their king. But what's the problem with that? David has been dead for hundreds of years by this point. But this future king will be everything David and his sons were meant to be. So much so that in the text, at least, the future king is simply called David. And then for just one more text on this, Jeremiah chapter 33. Look at chapter 33, verse 14. Jeremiah thirty-three fourteen. 14. This is this common phrase when Jeremiah was talking about the future. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of David. And to see how serious God is about this, look down to verse 25 and 26. 33:25. 25. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, in other words, like if, if, it, if the sun stops shining, if, if it won't be day and night anymore, if that happened, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant. And then I will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's the point of that? That's never going to happen. They will rule. A son will come, and he will rule. Okay, so those are the three big ideas about the king in Jeremiah. What are they? Do you remember them? One, God is king. This is foundational to everything that the prophets say about human kings. God is king. You don't have to fear any other god or any other king because God is king. And that's why Jeremiah can cry out, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? The gods of the nations are stupid. But the Lord our God is the true God. He is the everlasting king. And yet, in God's wisdom, he has chosen to accomplish his plans for the world through human kings, especially kings from David's family. But what's the second theme we looked at in Jeremiah about David's family? It's basically the sons of David are coming down. They're going down. Jeremiah announces that in his day God will chop down the Davidic family tree. It's like God pronounces a sentence of death on the Davidic dynasty. And you see that most clearly in those words to Jehoiakim, write this man down as childless. None of his sons will ever sit on the throne. In Jeremiah's day and in the story of the Bible, that is devastating news. But then there's Theme three in Jeremiah, that out of the ashes, a new and better son of David will rise. Long after David's family tree has been chopped down to the ground, God will cause a righteous branch, one more righteous branch, to spring up for David. And on that day, they will serve the Lord and David their king, and he will reign with justice in the land, and he will actually bring righteousness to his people. God has guaranteed it, and he will not change his mind. Now, for most things uh, that we've talked about, I'm going to wait till next week to try to connect this within this bigger story of the Bible about the rise and the return of the king. But for today, I just want to make two connections between what Jeremiah says would happen and what did happen about the king. So first, what God said would happen To the sons of David, in Jeremiah's day, it all happened. Those taken away never came back. Jehoiakim died, and nobody cared. And most importantly, what God promised to Jehoiakim happened too. He never came home, and his sons never sat on the throne of David. Ruin came to those shepherds who destroyed and scattered God's sheep, just like God promised. This is a reminder that there are no empty threats with God. But I don't want to end there by focusing on the promise of judgment, which God carried out, because that's not the only promise that God fulfilled. Though ruin came to the unfaithful shepherds. God also promised to raise up a new and better shepherd, a new and better son of David to be king. And that's the other connection I wanna make from Jeremiah. What God said he would do for David, God did for him and for us in Jesus. And you could think about this from some different stories of Jesus. For example, where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem, city of David. What did they say? What did the prophets say about what would happen in Bethlehem? Why did the wise men know, or why did, when they asked where the, the king would be born, why did the people know it's in Bethlehem? It's because of a prophecy. Remember, they told King Herod this that from Bethlehem there would come forth a ruler who would do what? Who would shepherd. God's people, Israel. The shepherd king that Jeremiah announced would come came. And what a shepherd he was. Instead of scattering God's sheep, this shepherd came to gather them. Instead of feeding himself and taking from the sheep, this shepherd fed them. Instead of wounding or taking advantage of the sheep, he came to bind them up. Instead of abandoning the sheep when they were in trouble, he defended them. And instead of destroying them, he came to save them. Now maybe you can remember the scripture that Natalie read for us earlier today. I wanted us to read that story today because Jesus knew all these texts. And he understood himself in light of these texts. That's why in John chapter 10, Jesus says the kind of stuff he did. I think it's primarily because of Jeremiah 23 and and Ezekiel 34, these two similar prophecies. Think of what Jesus said in light of what we've seen. This is John 10 again. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's just a hired hand and he does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for those sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I have to bring them to, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. Jesus understood himself as the shepherd king of Jeremiah 23, he was no hired hand. He did not run when trouble came. He made, he made the sheep. He owned the sheep, and he loved them. And unlike the bad shepherds who would give up the sheep to save their lives, Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life to save the sheep. I wanted us to read that as well, not just to think about how Jesus understood himself in light of this, but I also wanted us to read it because I wanted to hear those last words I read from Jesus. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Let me ask you, who are those other sheep in that text when Jesus says it? Because I, I, I have this feeling that we read these texts from Jeremiah and they're almost all about how God will send the shepherd to save whom? Israel and Judah. To begin to reclaim Israel and Judah. Which Jesus does. He begins that. But what's the problem for most of us is we maybe read those texts. We might feel like I'm not actually from Israel or Judah. I'm a Gentile. And so we might wonder did that shepherd come for me? Because I know I need a shepherd like that. And that's why I wanted us to read Jesus' other words. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Who did Jesus say that to? He said that to his disciples, who were basically all, I think all of them were Jewish. And he tells them, look, guys, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I'm going to bring them in too. And they're going to listen. And so there's just going to be one flock with one shepherd. Who are those other sheep? Those are people like most of us here today. Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he came for more than them. This shepherd king didn't just come for Israel. He came for the world. He came for us. He came to gather his flock, all of his flock, Jew and Gentile, all who would confess They need a savior from their sin and all who would admit that they are lost like sheep without a shepherd. And he's not done with that work yet. Jesus is still gathering, still gathering people from the four corners of the earth. One by one, Jesus gathers the lost sheep, bringing them into his new flock, into the church, where where Jesus watches over his sheep, where Jesus entrusts his sheep to the care of shepherds and to the love and support of his own family. And he will keep watching over this flock until that day when the chief shepherd returns to reign forever as king in the city of David. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of the Bible, the story of the King. And I pray that as we sang before this sermon today, I pray that you have and you will show us Christ. We've seen in these texts what Jesus saw And why he talked about himself the way that he did. And so I pray that you would show us Christ. And that we would run to our good shepherd. And that we would find rest in his care. I pray for anyone here today who does not know him. I pray they would come to know him and his voice today. And Lord, I pray for all of us who have come under his care, that you will give us rest, that you will give us trust, and that you will calm our hearts from any anxieties as we know he loves and cares for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.